Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for listening. Glad to have you with us. This is episode number 55 of The Next Track, and this week we wanted to find out about High End Munich 2017. That's the annual Hi-Fi Audio trade show. And a few episodes back, Chris Conacher of ComputerAudioFile.com, where Hi-Fi and high-tech converge, mentioned he was going to go to the show, so we thought we'd have him back to tell us all about it. Chris, how you doing? I am doing terrific. It's good to be back. It feels like I haven't been here forever, guys. <laughs> it's been a while, and we wanted to get you back to find out what's new. What have you been up to, Chris? I have been at the world's greatest hi-fi trade show in Munich, Germany. It is, it's kind of like the Super Bowl, the World Series, the World Cup, all in one if you're into hi-fi. It is absolutely the best show on earth. So traditionally, the high-end Munich show is a very large, very well-attended trade show, sort of like the CES of hi-fi. It's uh, four days. It's just a, just ended a few, couple of weeks ago, right? The show was May 18th through the 21st. Right. And there were 21,412 people who visited the show. So for a hi-fi only show, that's about four times what normal hi-fi, sh what a big hi-fi show would get in the U.S. That doesn't sound like a lot. Is this only pros or can anyone go? Uh, so the first two days are trade only. Okay. And I think Saturday and Sunday are uh, open to the public and trade. So a normal hi-fi show in the U.S., it's big if it has 5,000 people show up. Really? Wow. I, that's surprising. Yeah, I never would have thought that. The Yeah, the Munich show with over 21,000 people, it may not sound like a lot compared to something like CES uh, or shows in other industries, but for hi-fi, wow, this is really, really the show with more people than any other show. It's absolutely fabulous. There were 541 accredited journalists there, so... For a hi-fi show, that's a lot. unheard of, yeah. People from any country that has anything to do with hi-fi or consumers interested in hi-fi was represented there. So it's definitely, it's a, it's a you can't miss this show type of event. How many exhibitors were at the show? So there were 538 exhibitors. Wow. But I believe that just counts for, so an exhibitor would say, yeah, we purchased this room and we're going to exhibit in this room. But in that room, there could be 10 manufacturers uh, represented. Because for some of the smaller brands, there are like distributors that represent a number of brands. Is that how it works? Yes. So there's distributors or a manufacturer who makes loudspeakers, doesn't make uh, electronics, will get the room. This will be their room, but they'll bring in electronics from somebody else. And it's kind of, you know, manufacturers team up and it's, it's really, really cool. You have a chance to hear almost anything you can think of at this show. So who are the biggest exhibitors there? Who's the Apple and Microsoft of high-end audio? It's usually companies who have the biggest distribution in Europe. For example, there was a distributor who represented like Denon and they had really, really big booth space. But other ones who represent like Sonus Faber, Macintosh, Dan D'Agostino. So there was all kinds of brands. They had a really big booth space. There really isn't like, I mean, Denon would probably be the closest to an Apple or a Microsoft. But also the Dynaudio, the speaker company, had a really, really big space at this show. 
So, you know, that's kind of the big stuff in terms of in, in that kind of space. So this is called high-end audio for a reason. So you don't really get the sort of, so you don't really get the kind of brands like I'm thinking I've got Yamaha here and, and Panasonic makes stereos and things. I have Focal Chorus speakers. Would Focal be a high-end brand? Oh, yes. Yes. That brand is represented very well at the Munich show. They, for two really interesting reasons I took pictures of, uh, their Focal Grand Utopia loudspeaker was uh, not only orange, but it was orange leather. So it was it was really cool looking. Not only it, does it sound good, it looked cool. Um, but also their Utopia headphones. They have a beryllium driver and they sound absolutely fantastic. My two favorite headphones on earth are the Stax uh, Electrostatic and then the Focal Utopia. Absolutely awesome. So we we just paused a bit and we searched for these big speakers that they have. It kind of looks like a transformer thing. It's called the Grand Utopia EM or Grand with an E. So it's probably Grand Utopia EM would be the way it's pronounced. And I was looking for the price because I know someone a couple of years ago who told me he had a, a an earlier version of that. And I think they were forty or $50,000. This one costs $269,000 a pair. They weigh 260 kilograms each. They're two meters high. Now that I would say is high-end audio. Mine on my desk here costs 200 pounds for the pair, and they do sound pretty good, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But high-end, of course, doesn't mean price, right? It's in performance. That's right. The Focal brand is kind of special in the speaker market in that they design and manufacture every single piece of their loudspeakers. So your Focal speakers, technology really is trickled down in that they make the drivers in those speakers. Most manufacturers will pick drivers from a company like ScanSpeak, say, yeah, we'll take those, we'll take this crossover from that company, and we'll just assemble it in a box and call it a day. So yeah, Focal, great brand. Yeah, I discovered these a few years ago. I was living in France, and I went to a hi-fi store. I wanted to upgrade my equipment, and the guy played me a bunch of different speakers. I brought some music in. He had a good listening room, tried a half a dozen different kinds of speakers. And the focal speakers seem to be the most neutral. Like if I compare them to Bowers and Wilkins, those are really bass heavy, whereas the focal is much more neutral. And, and, and I appreciate that sound. And I have two pairs of them. I have a, a bookshelf set and a slightly bigger set. And I've been very, very pleased with these speakers. And And the person did tell me at the time that they were made and designed by focal. And I think they're even made in France. Yeah. And in fact, there's other manufacturers who don't like the word to get out that they use Focal drivers. <laughs> so oh, okay. I mean, you could buy a $150,000 loudspeaker that's really got Focal drivers inside of it and you didn't know it. <laughs> and evidently save yourself $100,000. <laughs> that's quite a pocketing of savings. Yes. <laughs> what, what I find interesting then is that, you know, we tend to think, oh, high-end audio, this is the really expensive stuff. But what we're seeing here is that high-end audio doesn't have to be expensive, that it's it's more brands than specific, you know, $10,000 cables. So a company like Focal has a range from low to high. On the other hand, you mentioned Macintosh. I don't think any of their amplifiers are really in the affordable range for the average listener, are they? Totally right. It's a really cool, it's kind of the Harley Davidson of audio. But yeah, when you think of affordable um, for the average listener, it's probably not the brand. It's probably more of an aspirational brand for a lot of people. Right. It's expensive. 
So some high-end is things that anyone can get, and some high-end is things that we can just look at and say, seriously? <laughs> yes, yes. You know, and when you look at it that way, it's kind of like some of the best ways to go about it are to look at brands like Focal, who have a huge range of everything, you know? there and There's other brands like, say, Wilson Audio makes really great stuff, but you're not going to even sniff that brand for less than $20,000, <laughs> you know? So a company like Focal is a company you can really get into at a really good price point for great performance. And, and it's a good point what you said earlier about the trickle down, that if they're designing really expensive stuff, they are applying some of that technology to the less expensive models eventually. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, when you're covering an event, the $200 loudspeakers aren't as fun to cover or they, they don't make a headline, not. you know, right? So... They, they don't get that much press. It's all about the Grand Utopia covered in leather with, you know, other stitching and this and that that really gets the press. But when you think about it, doesn't that $269,000 repair speaker get people to know the brand? And then when they see the brand at a price point they can afford, then they'll be familiar with it. And if, if I see a brand that makes a car that's $500,000, but they also make a car that I can afford, I'm thinking that there's got to be something from that high-end thing that's in my car as well. So it it probably gives the, the low-end buyer a, a bit more confidence that they're buying something that's made well, that sounds good, etc. Yeah, definitely. So what were the most impressive things you saw this year? Yeah, so the most impressive thing that I saw was the Constellation Audio Leo. Most people will probably look at this and go, huh, really, what? So it's a all-in-one loudspeaker. I, I guess for people who aren't familiar uh, with hi-fi, you could look at it as like, you know how Sonos has their all-in-one loudspeaker and you can stream music to it and do whatever you want. This is truly like a high-end, high-performance hi-fi all-in-one loudspeaker that I have been waiting for for any manufacturer to build forever. I love these loudspeakers. The concept of it is fabulous. Constellation Audio, for people who aren't familiar with the brand, makes very, very high-end products. And they have like a design team of all-stars who got together to design their stuff. And it's really, really a cool brand. There'll be links in the show notes to everything we discuss, and in particular to this, and it looks like someone broke it. <laughs> you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right? Yeah. They actually had a very high-end firm design it. It's a firm that does a lot of uh, car design and everything like that. So that's what they went with. I think it looks pretty cool. The Are you looking at the black or the silver? I'm looking at the black. Okay. The silver looks much better, and in person, it looks much better than the pictures. But that speaker, and it, and it sounds crazy to say that it's going to have all these things because stuff in the really low end has had all of this stuff forever. So it'll support like Chromecast Audio, AirPlay, uh, Spotify Connect, Tidal, all of these things. And a hi-fi product that actually supports this and sounds really, really good. It just was non-existent. Is this a single speaker or do you buy these in pairs so you can buy them as a single you call it a single speaker you know there's several speakers within the chassis so you can buy it as a single unit or you can buy it in a pair and then create a stereo pair from them 
and stand it up if you want. Is the single unit stereo like the, the, the Sonos Play 5? Yes. Okay. I sat and down and listened to this thing for a really long time. And I just loved it. What kind of cost are we talking about? So they're shooting for less than $5,000. Oh, okay. That's not cheap, but these guys make amplifiers for $80,000. I mean, this to me is a real high-end brand going at a much more mass market. So granted, we're not all going to drop $5,000 on something like this, but compared to $80,000, this is this is really cool. How soon will it be before we start to see the the quality of something like this trickle down to the consumer price level, if ever? Like five hundred dollars. Yeah. I don't know, but I believe there's going to be a line of Constellation stuff. So the Leo's the first one. It's five thousand dollars. I don't know, given their low volume, if they'll ever get something to five hundred, and. Uh, they manufacture either, they, I, I don't think they know where they're going to manufacture this one, but it'll probably be in Europe or the U.S. And to get something of this quality, you know, down to 500 be very tough. But I, I do think this is going to be a range of products, so hopefully there'll be something less than 5000 I mean, certainly expensive, but nowhere near the astronomical prices. Okay, so I'm, I'm looking at the webpage, and it's got six speakers, 540 watts, and that's very interesting. But what's so special about it for you? You said earlier that you've been waiting for something like this. What makes it so special? I have a number of products in this category, and they all sound good, but nothing sounds like, oh, this is really, really awesome. So when I l- listened to this product, it was finally like, yes, high performance is really here with this type of product because yes i have like sonos products and they sound good and this and that but really if you're a hi-fi enthusiast and want high performance audio sonos isn't where it's at and there's other products like devula with their phantom you've probably seen that the round ball that you know has they've advertised the heck out of that thing um it's cool it's got really cool design inside and outside but it doesn't sound like it should for, you know, a few thousand dollars. So this one to me finally brings the sound with the features that I've been dying for. And I love that the whole concept of this speaker is absolutely awesome. If I can come home and my daughter and my wife are jamming Beyonce or lately it's Jefferson airplane and enjoying it to me, that's awesome. Right? So, and now that they can do it on hi-fi, I'm introducing good sound to them and they don't know it, it's awesome. So what's interesting is you mentioned that this supports Chromecast, AirPlay, and Bluetooth. How many different devices like this were at the high-end audio show that are supporting all of these streaming features? Because this one looks like it's the kind of speaker that you're going to use with your smartphone, your, your Apple Music, your Spotify, your Tidal, whatever, you're going to stream to it. Is high-end audio following this trend and developing devices like this Are a lot of brands doing this? The smart companies are, yes. The companies that are capable of doing it, yes. A lot of companies in hi-fi either aren't capable, don't have the vision, or are too stubborn to do this. So basically, there are companies that are seeing the world around them change and aren't reacting. Oh, exactly, yes. It's dragging them into this century, kicking and screaming. Some of them, it's it's kind of amazing. High-end audio is full of really small manufacturers who are started by like a founder who may have cut his chops in analog audio and that's it. And that's their interest and that's fine. But 
the world changes, right? And so it's it's adapt or you know you might not make it. Walking around the Munich show, I bet I didn't see more than three products that support Chromecast audio. Wow, really? And we're talking thousands of products there. So yeah. it's it's weird to say yes, my favorite product of the show finally supports Chromecast audio, and it's five thousand dollars. This is hi-fi, but. We're not on the leading edge, unfortunately. Okay, what else really stood out from the show? My favorite sound of the show was from Martin Loudspeakers. It's a Swedish brand. They make a speaker called the Coltrane 3. That was, it looks fabulous. It sounds fabulous. I wish I had a price on it, but it's one of those, I could buy a really nice car or I could buy a loudspeaker. It's in that range. So... I just have it written down as my favorite sound of the show. I sat in there and I listened to Led Zeppelin and had a blast. Wow, that's a nice looking speaker. We're looking at the website and uh, you won't see a price anywhere. It's tough on these websites because they don't publish prices. And in a way, it's understandable because these websites are to show off the product, which will be sold by distributors in, in different countries around the world. Right. And in that context, you can't really compete on price. You have to compete on features and specs. And yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, but I'm guessing if you go to the Ferrari website, they don't list prices either. And these companies are like the Ferrari of high-end audio. So other notable stuff from this show, you guys are probably familiar with the brand ELAC, loudspeakers. I've heard of it, yeah. So Andrew Jones, who used to design for Pioneer and TAD, moved over to ELAC, and they have been like the talk of shows for the last couple years. So even mainstream press have been covering ELAC because they have really affordable stuff that sounds absolutely awesome. For ELAC, you can probably get a pair of speakers for $500 and it will sound better than a lot of speakers for several thousand. ELAC announced it's a Dante loudspeaker. It's uh, $5,000 a pair, so not cheap, but these loudspeakers are absolutely awesome. ELAC has economies of scale, really big manufacturer, they know where to get stuff manufactured, where they can make it for a reasonable price. Say their top speaker, I say top speaker, but really the Andrew Jones design top speaker. They have other designers who make speakers that are tens of thousands of dollars. But this series that Andrew Jones has designed, this Adante, so 5,000 and less down to say 500, anything in that range is awesome. And I have no problem telling all my friends, if you're looking for loudspeakers, look at ELAC. You will find something in your price range, and you will not be disappointed with the price and the performance. Yeah, I see that they have stand mount speakers and floor standing speakers and a center channel speaker as well for a for a surround sound system. Nice looking stuff. It doesn't look too speakery, but it doesn't look strange as well, like like that focal. $269,000 speakers. If anybody's interested, do research on Andrew Jones. I don't know that there's a better loudspeaker designer on earth. And he, it, it's it's kind of the opposite of a lot of high-end audio. He measures his loudspeaker long before he even listens to it. He He's not into the whole snake oil thing. This guy is like science. He's a physicist. And he is totally like anti-snake oil. 
So I know a lot of people get turned off by the snake oil in high-end audio, including myself. Well, it's understandable. Yep. So you're not being sold a bill of goods when you look at an ELAC product. It's it's fabulous. We've talked in previous episodes about uh, the MQA audio format. Were there any developments with, with MQA at high-end? Yes. MQA did have a presence. Um, there was announcements before the show started of contract signing with Merlin, who is the organization that represents a lot of the indie labels, and Sony Music. So now I believe MQA has contracts, or whatever you call them, with all of the major labels. Um, what that means, don't know. If the major labels are now going to release more stuff in MQA, I believe it's going that way. I think they're just going to want to release MQA and that's it. But we'll see. There was more hardware manufacturers uh, playing back stuff with MQA. DCS, for one, one of the uh, best companies in the world for digital audio, based in Cambridge, showed their, I think it was the Rossini playing MQA. Interesting, DCS also showed their Vivaldi One Limited Edition. So you may want to look that one up, Kirk. It's uh, DAC and SACD player all-in-one chassis for a mere 55,000 pounds. And it is, I believe they are celebrating their 30th year, so the company, so they came out with a limited edition product. I mean, it's cool. It's very expensive. It's all made in the UK. They have a gloss white, gloss black, and a 24 karat gold version. Oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> See, that that just killed it. White and black is fine, but 24 karat gold, that's just me. No, no. <laughs> so, yeah, gold, though, when you uh, look at countries who like gold and can afford gold, you think of China right. and the Middle East. Right. Yeah. So. A lot of customers for this there. Okay. We've been talking about the Ferraris and the Maseratis and the Bentleys of audio. Give us something that our listeners can maybe think about actually buying instead of just looking at pictures of. What, what do you have on the lower end? Totally, totally. So I stumbled into this company called Inuos, I-N-N-U-O-S. They make music servers. They start at $1,200, $1,300, and... The interface is really, really nice. And it can do kind of two different things. So you store your music on it. They have a great iOS interface. I think Android as well. It allows you to, sure, browse your collection in a really, really nice way. But the really cool part about this was editing your metadata from your iPad. So you pull up an album. No, we've all looked at it and, oh, I capitalized a letter right in the middle of this word yep. or something. Or I just want to make a small adjustment. Sure, you can do that. But also, you can take a picture of any part of the album or whatever you want, and boom, it associates that with the album. So, sure, you can search Google for, you know, your album covers, and that's good. But when it starts to get to the back of the album or the inside liner notes or you have the special UK version that you want the cover of, you can just yep. take your iPad right there, boom, snap a picture, and that's your album art. I mean, it's really, really, it's, it's cool. It's like, why doesn't everybody just do that? I think anyone who collects enough music to want a server like this cares about metadata. And not providing better solutions for metadata, it just doesn't go all the way. It's, as, as you said, Chris, you, you capitalized the letter and you want to fix it. Do you want? Do you have to go back to your computer, fix it, resync the file, or copy the file, or do something? It's just not worth all that headache. 
So I'm looking at their website. They have three different servers from 700 to 2300 pounds, and they all have CD drives in them. So basically, you put your CDs in, it rips, it probably looks up the metadata. But frankly, if you're going to be spending that much on a music server, you probably already have a computer. And I don't know about you guys, I would rather see the metadata when it's ripped rather than have to make any major changes to it through a tablet app. I look at it like this. Remember when iPhones came out and you always had to sync with your computer? Everything you had to do was connect it to your computer to do this and that. Yep, and yep. then all of a sudden, I never connected my iPhone to my computer again after a certain OS version or a certain iPhone release. It was like, I don't have to do that. So when you look at this Inuos product, you don't ever have to use a computer. Although it is a computer inside, you don't ever have to go edit metadata, rip CD, anywhere else. This is all... Right, so it's a standalone device, maybe even for people who don't like computers, or you've got a second home where you park your Ferrari and you want to just take this device and you've bought some CDs when you're out on the town and you want to be able to rip them and listen to them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's, as used car salesmen say, there's an ass for every seat, right? So <laughs> this this product definitely has customers for it. I really like it. And I think if I was going to tell my friends to get something that they needed to do this kind of stuff, I'd be like, yeah, take a look at this. Throw your CD in, rips it, spits it out, it's done. And if you don't want to use the Inuos interface, it's also a Rune core server. There's tons of fans of the Rune uh, yeah. application. You can So you can use Rune with this. This product bridges the gap because Rune is never going to get into the CD ripping business. No. And Inuos does it. So... Boom, you have a Rune core with CD ripping all in one. Not, I, I don't know of other products that do that other than a computer running a full operating system like iOS or Windows right. or whatever like that. So I really, really like this Inuos product. Uh, I can see this as being, you know, a system for a lot of people who don't want to deal with a computer even. Yeah, yeah. Let's finish with something for portable audio. What's the most interesting thing you saw for portable audio listening on the go? Uh we can talk about, I don't know much about it, but the Odyssey LCD4i headphone, A-U-D-U-Z-E-E, -E, I think is how you spell it. Odyssey? Is it Odyssey? It's, I it's it was... pronounced Odyssey. Okay. But it's most people look at it and go, Odyssey? Oh, just like Kirk just did. <laughs> <laughs> but they do that on purpose to separate the people who know them from the people who don't. Sure. Okay, so the LCD-i4 in-ear headphone. This is a very strange looking headphone. Yes. Did you, did you find a picture of it? Yeah, I did. Link in the show notes, 2500 bucks, everyone. Yow. But I'll tell you, there's something I like. It's got a little clip that goes around the back of the ear. So you don't have to jam it into your ear canal, I assume. Well, yes, you do. But you don't have to jam it in your ear so it doesn't fall out. Ah, oh, very true. You're not putting it in there like a secure connection type of thing to right. your brain. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a way, this is Odyssey's attempt to trickle down in size and price. $2,500, not cheap, but it's cheaper than the bigger LCD4 flagship headphones that they make. This headphone did make a big splash in Munich. It uses, I believe it's the same kind of technology like planar magnetic. And for an in-ear, that's quite different. Well, so what it looks like, and, and I encourage all our listeners to click through at least this link to see what this one looks like. It's quite strange. It looks like you've got the in-ear part of the headphone, then you've got a very large outer element, which basically the size of your ear. And so that's where your your planar whatever diaphragm is going to be. And then the sound channels through 
the 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 small thing into the ear is that does that make sense yeah yeah that's that's exactly un, it. unlike most earphones in ear and, and earbuds and all that which are relatively tiny this is much bigger and so there's a lot more there's a lot more room to create the sound here yeah yeah and looking at it it goes down to 10 hertz for bass yeah so that's that's pretty low. Yeah, there isn't much more low to go after that. Looking at their headphones, they range from about seven hundred to four thousand dollars, which, okay, four thousand is a lot, but seven hundred is pretty reasonable for a, a good pair of headphones. Yeah, this company was one of the first, also, to introduce a native lightning connector headphone. Oh, they were one of the few back then, and and that's a good question. Have you seen a lot of those lately? Because after Apple removed the headphone jack from the iPhone. I've only heard of a few different companies that made headphones that do have the lightning connector. I would have expected more, but it really suggests that headphone manufacturers don't believe in this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or they're just going for wireless. But if you want true quality, yeah, they're, they, don't, they really don't believe in it. Okay, so I'm going to pull up my bank statement here and see what I can afford. Because Chris, you, as usual, you come on the show with all these expensive things here. But it's been great fun because it, it is, you know, we laugh a little bit at the price, but it's true, as you said earlier, about the trickle down that companies make these things in a way they're proof of concept or like concept cars and all that. And the technology will get down to us sometime before we die. So it's nice to see what people are working on. I, I think it'll be interesting to follow up these standalone music servers if they become popular or like those speakers you talked about earlier that accept streams, you know, AirPlay and Bluetooth. That to me seems like it's going to be one of the largest markets for home audio. It'll be interesting to see if there's more high-end stuff that does that, but at lower prices. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that manufacturers have to go that route. Um, what did you bring home from Munich, Chris? Oh, I brought home, I'm sure everybody will be super excited to hear this, a stuffed teddy bear called Trudy for my daughter. Oh, right. <laughs> does it have Bluetooth and uh, Chromecast? <laughs> it's got SSD in it and everything. <laughs> Chris, this has been a whole lot of fun. Thanks very much for your report. And we hope to have you on again soon. Excellent. Thanks for having me, guys. I look forward to next time. Okay, all right. Here's where we present our next tracks. Kirk, what will you be listening to? I haven't been listening to a lot of music lately. I've been listening to some Grateful Dead releases, but I'm sure that the listeners are tired of hearing of my Grateful Dead picks of the week. I have, however, been flitting around uh, Apple Music's For You section, and I came across an album that stood out to me because it brought back a lot of memories. It is called The Imperfect Sea by Penguin Cafe. Now, some of you may recall the Penguin Cafe Orchestra, first recorded on Brian Eno's Obscure Records in the 1970s. The founder of the band, Simon Jeffies, died some time ago, and the band was taken over by his son, Arthur Jeffies, in 2009. He continues the same sort of minimalist, happy music of the original Penguin Cafe Orchestra. And if you know the, the first album, there was this one song playing numbers on a touchtone phone in a happy rhythm that was really cool. But it's got this more modernist, it's not electronic, it's this sort of neoclassical kind of music that it's really hard to describe. Check out this new album, Penguin Cafe. It's called The Imperfect Sea. But at the same time, go back to the older Penguin Cafe orchestra albums if you've never heard this. This is really fun music. Doug, what are you listening to? I have a Jimmy Smith album. It's a classic. Not that all of his albums aren't classic. Jimmy Smith, in case you don't know, was the preeminent jazz organist uh, during the late 50s and 60s. He helped 
popularized the Hammond B3 among jazz and blues guys and later rock guys. The album I'm going to be listening to is called Root Down. If you're a Beastie Boys fan by chance, you may know that their song Root Down samples Jimmy Smith and name checks him too. Jimmy Smith has been sampled a lot, actually, now that I think about it. Anyway, Root Down is a live album recorded in 1972 at a club in Los Angeles. The band he's playing with features Wilton Felder on bass, who later went on to form the Crusaders, Paul Humphrey on drums, and he's a guy who did a lot of L.A. session work in the 70s, and Arthur Adams on guitar. It's a great little band. Now, this album was recorded at a time when Jimmy was pretty well-known, highly regarded, and, and these guys he's playing with, well, they're on the younger side, and by all accounts, they really sparked a great performance from Jimmy. It's, it's really a great jazz record. It's a great live record, and I haven't heard it in years, so I'm looking forward to it. It's called Root Down, Jimmy Smith Live, and it's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.